if you would have invested a thousand dollars, if you were brave enough to invest a thousand dollars back in in uh, 1983, that thousand dollar investment is worth you know close to eight million dollars in value today. Welcome to CEO Brain Food. Every episode, entrepreneur, CEO, founder, and host Michael Langhout will bring you key insights, fresh perspectives, and proven tools you can apply to your business. Thought leaders and CEOs will be interviewed as we explore winning strategies for scaling a company, generating profits, and building lasting enterprise value. Make sure you listen all the way to the end of the episode to hear how you can download a free copy of Michael's Functional Team Scorecard. Here's Michael. Welcome back to CEO Brain Food. And today I'm very pleased to have Rich Armstrong and Steve Baker with me on the podcast. Rich and Steve are respectively president and vice president of the Great Game of Business located in Springfield, Missouri. And the Great Game of Business is the educational division of the employee owned SRC Holdings also located in uh, Springfield. So Rich and Steve, welcome. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having us. You bet. I wanted to have you both on the podcast for a bunch of reasons, but mainly because you've just co-authored the new book, Get in the Game, How to Create Rapid Financial Results and Lasting Cultural Change which was just published last month, October 2019. So congratulations on that. Let me just say how to create rapid financial results and lasting cultural change. I got to tell you guys, with my clients, those words will resonate. They all want rapid financial results and they want lasting cultural change. So I would consider that a, a hot topic. By the way, uh, for the listeners, you can find the book at greatgame.com, along with uh, a lot of other resources, among them two other books, uh, one that's going to be published this uh, January, which is written by Jack Stack, who first wrote the book Great Game of Business, Jack Stack and Bo Burlingham, and that's the origin story of open book management. It's the what of open book management. And his new book coming out, as I said, in January is Change the Game, Jack Stack's new book. And that's the why, but this is the how. The Get in the Game book, which is the definitive guide to implementing the great game of business, is the how. It's the how it's done, how we can create that rapid financial results and uh, lasting cultural change. So I would say the three all together can be taken as sort of the, the business trifecta. Believe me, if you read these three books, you're going to come away with uh, a tremendous uh, learning and methodology and framework, and way beyond that, just a whole way of running a business that's uh, not exactly new, but for some, new and, and unique and unusual compared to uh, the way a lot of businesses are run today. You know, to get us started, Rich, you've had some experience at Springfield Remanufacturing. I mentioned SRC Holdings earlier. That's the SRC stands for the Springfield Remanufacturing Corporation. And Rich, if you wouldn't mind 
Could you walk our listeners through a high-level view of how the great game of business got its start? Yeah, absolutely. Again, Jack talked a a lot about this in, in the original book, The Great Game of Business, but this was all originated from a um, little company here in Springfield, Missouri. At the time, was called the International Harvester Renew Center. It was a division of International Harvester out of Chicago. At the time, in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, I mean, this is an organization. It was one of the one of the largest organizations in the world. Often referred to it as kind of the Microsoft or the Apple of the industrial age. Right? They were. A, a dominant uh, player in in the industrial you know the industrial market at that point in time but that particular company because of some overseas competition uh, ran into some financial issues in the late 70s early 80s and began to uh, sell off assets to be able to save the company one of those assets for sale was our little company here in Springfield, Missouri. At the time, it was about 116 employees. Young general manager at the time was Jack Stack. I think he was at the ripe age of about 32 years old. Hmm. Had been asked to come down to Springfield uh, to run the organization and really was tasked with finding a way to uh, sell off that particular business. Mm. Although he kind of fell in love with the uh, culture we have here in terms of the, the people in Springfield, Missouri, it was very much that culture of, you know, give me the tools and get out of the way. I can do the job. Mm. And, you know, really loved the community and started to be thinking, is there another way? Should we just sell this organization off or could we do something else? And so he energized a, a group of managers here at SRC to um, do a management buyout and make a bid on the, on buying the business. However, you know, International Harvester wanted $9 million for the facility, and they were only able to raise about $100,000 equity. So uh, they went out searching for financing to purchase the facility. And was uh, after about 54 different financial institutions, they were able to Find a bank that was uh, willing to loan them $8.9 million on $100,000 equity. Oh, my gosh. And so 89 to 1 debt equity was our uh, how we started the organization. And I think this is really where the origin of the great game of business came from, is that what Jack realized from that quest in terms of getting financing, that there was a whole new language of business being taught and being discussed that he had never learned by working at International Harvester. It was all about... Mm. You know, productivity is about quality. It was about building a solid product, but not necessarily building a company. And what he was finding out is the banks were not necessarily interested in how great their quality was and how productive they were in, as an organization. Mm-hmm. They were just wondering when he was going to pay the loan back, right? And, and what kind of cash he was going to be able to generate. And this was financial language that he had never really um, understood or learned. And so after going through that, you know, he really kind of promised himself that, hey, if we ever get this loan, we start this business, here's an opportunity for me to really teach everyone in the organization this. And it became very, very handy because when you start out an organization at 89 to 1 debt to equity ratio, Mm. you can't make a mistake. You can't make very many mistakes and stay in business. So he started to take those lessons, started teaching everyone in the organization, here's what you can do to make an impact to the financial success of the company and how we can start to help to pay down the debt and turn that into equity and what that could mean to the entire organization. Sounds like Jack was a sort of a manufacturing guy. I mean, it's when you talk about International Harvester, I think they're located, uh, they were anyway, it's an iconic brand from decades ago. 
I, I think they went out of business, but ultimately, but I think he was in Chicago. Is that right? And was he a manufacturing kind of in the manufacturing realm as opposed to being an executive? That's exactly right. He was, he was running uh, manufacturing facilities, engine manufacturing facilities primarily. Hmm. And so he comes to Springfield, he falls in love with the, with the uh, company, with the culture in the area, wanting to save jobs and goes out and winds up raising some friends and family or, you know, whatever, uh, you know, small amount of equity, which is frankly for a big manufacturing company like SRC is almost, uh, you can't even get your head around it, but a $8.9 million loan against a hundred thousand in equity is, I would be hard pressed to think that that could even happen today. So it's, it's, it's really amazing. How did he begin the process? You talk about teaching people the language of business. I think that's where you were going with that. I mean, how, how did he start doing that? Well, I think it was in a real practical, organic way. I mean, it wasn't, uh, I don't think it was a big event or an initiative on his part other than just, hey, you know, we have uh, some big challenges ahead of us. And he simply laid out those financial challenges and said, look, we need to to keep our jobs and maintain our jobs that we're going to have to, you know, service this debt. And to service this debt, we have to create cash. And to create cash, we got to make a profit. And what happened was that he's just started to you know track measure and report that as simple as the, i think the original f- uh, scorecard um, that we ever had at, at SRC was simply a scorecard that was laid next to the uh, time clock when people would uh, check out for the day that uh, it simply said how much money we uh, had in the bank and uh, when was the next payment for the debt and then he just started to align everybody to that particular goal, which we call a critical number, and start to help people understand what they do every day that impacts that particular goal. And that's how we started to teach people the business. So creating a broad scale awareness around, as you say, your your word, a critical number. In that case, it was making the interest payment that they had to make. Otherwise, the bank would call the loan. I mean, they'd be out of business, so they couldn't make any mistakes. What pressure that must have been unbelievable yes <laughs> I, I mean i just can't even i was i was uh probably a few years younger than jack not many but i i mean i remember what i was doing back in uh you know back in that during those times and in the manufacturing sector myself but uh i've often thought in in speaking with jack about this i've i've often thought about gosh you know kind of putting myself into that picture and how would i have behaved and reacted as a young husband and father and with a mortgage. And I mean, that, that was, that was big risk in those days. It was, and it was tough times, right? Yeah. It was one of the worst recessions we've seen. And, you know, the unemployment was really high. So in a lot of, right. in a lot of ways, they didn't have a lot of other choices if they couldn't keep their own jobs. So um, it's very much rallying around. And, and uh, I think the, the thing that kind of held them together was the fact that it's one thing saving your jobs, but they had a tremendous opportunity if they could figure out how to turn around the company. So the company was uh, struggling along, trying to find customers and make cash flow and pay, make payroll and all of that. And here we have this gigantic debt load that shows up operating by a, a manager who was not familiar with dealing with banks and financials. And like you say, he was more focused on productivity, on-time delivery, quality, those kinds of things, which frankly, bankers 
kind of, uh, I guess they might be interested in it, but they're way more interested in your ability to repay the loan. <laughs> yes, exactly. Dealing with a lot of the entrepreneurs that we deal with in coaching, uh, we find that to be the case so often. Um, Steve, I'd like to kind of turn this over um, and, and, and have you address something here. One of the things that, you know, that I've noticed in private companies in the U.S., for sure in the U.S., that there, there seems to be a perception that capitalism has fulfilled a, basically a fiduciary duty for owners. In other words, uh, the owners of private companies create wealth for themselves and they build their companies up paying wages to people that are helping them do that. And, you know, they may have a discretionary bonus or they may not. They may, they may have a paying some kind of a competitive rate for wages. But this fiduciary concept we're talking about really hasn't done much for employees, you know, really other than providing a paycheck. So they really do work most of their lives paycheck to paycheck. The concept of a pension is kind of long gone ever since we got into 401ks. But the main point here that I'm going after is that most companies have left the employees out of the equation mm -hmm. when it comes to building equity or sharing in the in the wealth that they that they do help create how does this concept and we're calling this open book management great game of business open book management i think is the term that really came out of this process uh, early on but how does how does open book management address that with uh, employees and building wealth yeah what's interesting michael is that the um the big idea of what is the purpose of an organization, the purpose of a corporation seems to have changed. You know, back in the 70s, Milton Friedman kind of put out that idea of the responsibility of an organization, a corporation is for the benefit of the shareholders. So it was just profit, profit, profit. August 19th of this year, the Business Roundtable, 183 of the largest uh, company CEOs in the United States got together and reestablished the purpose of the corporation is now for uh, much more than that, the stakeholders rather than the shareholders. So it's the idea of the, uh, the employees and the communities and uh, the environment, what you might call multiple bottom lines. What's interesting about this is that's cool. I love it um, because I think we should be paying attention to the people that are doing the work, they actually create the numbers of our financials, right? They're doing the work and making the numbers. Uh, we just manage them. But the business roundtable didn't give any guidance on here's how we're going to do it. <laughs> there was no promise of we're going to make it better for all of these stakeholders. So, you know, I'm passionate about it because great game of business, while you call it open book management, most people do, Michael. Transparency seems to be the umbrella concept. But in reality, what we're doing is we're teaching people to win. So we're teaching them business so they can win in a very competitive environment so that the company can win and we can have all the great things that we want as employees, job security, career path, opportunities to grow. Maybe it's other stuff too, like tuition reimbursement or, uh, as you say, a bonus plan, or maybe even like at SRC, maybe it's employee ownership. How about a pickup truck and a bass boat, you know? <laughs> yeah, so Jack mentioned that in uh, in his book and uh, when it came out as a 20th anniversary edition. And what's funny about it is, is see, when a guy like Jack Stack hires someone, he hires them for life. That's how he takes the responsibility. Wow. That idea of, hey, this isn't just providing jobs. This is providing a livelihood. And, and that's a different viewpoint than most entrepreneurs have. So and the other part that separates him is 
yeah, it is. It's totally different. And what I'd encourage listeners to do is think about who are we trying to enrich? Are we trying to enrich a very few people or are we trying to enrich everybody? Because Jack's big idea, this idea of teaching people to win, teaching them business, which is the ultimate language of business, those are skills they can use at home and out in their communities as well. So we're really enriching people in a lot of ways. We're growing the whole person, not just you know the the hands, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So um, it's kind of cool, you know. Rich has been around SRC for a long time. I'm more of a newbie, about 14 years in. So I've I've worked out there in the world in in uh, you know family owned companies, not my family, of course, and. <laughs> it's different, you know, they're there to take care of the family and I'm not complaining. They were good folks and helped me, you know, get my first mortgage and have kids and, you know, stuff like that. But nowhere was it ever discussed that, um, Hey, if you do better, we do better. Let's do this together. Uh, it was usually just, Hey, do more, sell more, be smarter. You know, that's just an opinion. And you might, after doing all of that, you might get a bonus will let you know at the end of the year how it's uh, how it's all stacking up and and you know if we if we have some extra here we'll we'll dole it out uh, sort of on a discretionary basis. I get that. Oh yeah, I, yeah, I, I for get sure. that. And and I remember uh, myself just going through on a, as a salaried guy. I came to the realization that companies are going to typically pay a salary or a or a pay, make a payroll based on the lowest rate they possibly can conceivably get away with. They treat typically treat uh, compensation as a cost to be controlled as opposed to, a, you know, an investment to be nourished. Um, and I, and I just, I love, uh, mm-hmm. I love Jack's uh, philosophy of lifetime hiring. It's like very rarely can we make a greater impact on our business than when we hire someone as, as leaders and managers and so on. And if we're hiring, you know, have a hiring decision. And so we have to do that carefully, but we also have to think about it in terms of lifetime. And I think that's great. And it's so unusual, as you point out. It's, it certainly is unusual for, uh, uh, in my experience anyway. But the coolest thing is, is, you know, Jack believes that the, I think we all believe this actually at SRC anyway, and great game companies is that the, uh, the dominant companies in the next 10 years will be those who are dominant with their workforce, right? You know, the, in other words, um, do we have the smartest people? Are we making the smartest decisions? Are we heading in the right direction together? And uh, we all have visibility to this war for talent. So um, entering into a conversation with someone, knowing that you're just more than uh, the task at hand, it makes you make different decisions and you look a little harder and think a little bit longer before you make that hire. That's so true. And and boy, you mentioned war, war for talent. Um you guys are located there in the Springfield, Missouri area, which is in the heartland of our country. And I'm, I'm out on the West Coast in the uh, Pacific Northwest. And out here, we have currently got unemployment in the range of 35 to 3.7%, which is unprecedented. Um, and it, it becomes very, very difficult not only to find people, but to retain them. I was with a uh, CEO yesterday afternoon, in fact, talking about this very topic, reviewing some of his um, some of his top concerns and some of his issues. And you know, one of the things that he said was he has uh, he has about three hundred employees. It's a manufacturing company, and um, he's turned over two hundred of them in the last year. Wow! I was speechless. I, I didn't know how to respond to that. I mean, can, and I just posed the question, 
how would you calculate, how would you begin calculating the cost of that? It's, it's unbelievable and extremely, extremely expensive to do, uh, to, to operate in that, in that way. And I'm not blaming that particular company or, or anything. I think it, there's a lot of factors, obviously, that would impact that. But still, uh, what a difficult, what a liability, what a burden to overcome. And my sense is in reading the book that if those that are listening uh, would read the book, uh, get in the game, you're going to start to see some things that will really, really help you. I mean, there's, this is a this is a absolute how-to manual of how to run a business and and to retain your people and to create that great culture and, and, um, control your costs and realize, you know, just a much greater uh, level of prosperity, um, in the long, in the long term. Rich, I'd like to ask a question that maybe you could address in your book that you and Steve have written in get in the game. You, you talk about workers working in a vacuum of information. In other words, they're mainly coming in and doing work, uh, you know, heads down, earning a paycheck not really aware of what's going on sort of globally in the business, but they're there to, to do a specific task, to, to feed a press or to operate a, uh, a molding machine or a die cutter or, you know, placing a screw into a, you know, uh, in, into a machine somewhere or a part. So I, I guess the question is, how do you engage your people you talk about business literacy and, and teaching them sort of the rules of the game and, and, and more about how to be business thinkers. Most of these people, I just mentioned the 200 that turned over, I would guess that the vast majority of them are not business thinkers. How do you get started in that? What do you, how, do you, uh, how do you do that in your company? Well, I think it's interesting when you talk about, you know, the, the retention issue we have. I mean, I think we all could agree that that may even get worse. And we're trying to figure out different ways to properly engage or what are the most effective ways to engage people to get them interested in the, you know, in working for you and not others, right? Um, that's going to be really the challenge we have. There's so much information out there about engagement, right? And different ways that are trying to engage people. And when you really look into it, a lot of it is really targeted about more of the soft side of engagement, right? That you're trying to create a good place to work, right? That people can be satisfied, better benefits. You know, maybe you're competing on wages in some way. But what we've really found, you know, with the great game of business is that teaching people the business and get them in it, getting them in the same game that the owner and the CEO is in the business can be maybe the biggest and the best engagement lever you could pull. People want to be in the know and they want to know what they can do to contribute. And I think with a new generation of the workforce coming in, I think that's even mm. more of something that they're looking for is how do you, how are you going to get me engaged and, and show me how I make an impact in the business? And uh, the only way that we can think you can do that with, with business is to teach them the game of business. And what we've seen not only as kind of a byproduct to our ability to teach people the financials of the business and to let them understand how a business works is that it's also been a huge engagement lever for us over the years. So by learning more about the business and what the business is all about and maybe some of the, some of the challenges, some of the risks where they're actually participating in that and learning about it, that that actually causes them to sort of, it piques their interest and causes them to maybe want to be part of, part of the company 
more so than in other companies that really are not are not sharing at that at that level of transparency. Yeah, there's a lot of untapped potential. You know, as you talked about earlier, of people having a certain job that they do, but um, there's a lot of talent out there that can be uh, tapped, and people want to do what they do best. And when they understand the business more and where they can make the greatest impact, uh, there isn't any a better way to engage people or get them interested in what the opportunities are with your company. Rich, you mentioned earlier about uh, the first scorecard that went up, uh, which I think you mentioned was had, had to do with uh, making the interest payment or something uh, at, at, at that point as a critical number in the company. How does scoreboarding work at the SRC companies today? I mean, and, and really what I'm getting at here is we're talking about workers that are coming in and we're teaching them about the business. I mean, I'm having a hard time seeing a machine operator interested in a number, like a financial number or something. They're actually doing that. How does that work? Well, I think the connection is is making sure that the employee or finding a way to get the employee to understand that that's really what's defining winning for the company is that, you know, the company to be sustainable, to continue to offer a good job and good wages is that it has to be successful financial. And that's a that's often a number that is probably the top goal for any company, although we don't share that with employees, right? That that is the goal, and here's how we're doing against that goal. Where they get engaged is if they understand why it's important, which is you know, the success and sustainability of the business, then the next level of engagement is just understanding what can I do personally to impact that goal, and that's where our scoreboarding, huddling process, a lot of the practices that we use is all in an effort to create that line of sight to what they are doing every day. The decisions they're making, the actions they take every day are impacting the success of the organization. And when you make that connection, that can be very engaging to them because they know that they're making an impact. They're not just walking out thinking, oh, I, you know, great, I you know, was able to deliver five more you know, units out the door. It was more about that we actually contributed to the long-term success of the organization. Yeah, and they're probably prior to this or in other companies that are not practicing the great game, they're just focused on maybe getting that unit out the door and they're happy with that. And they don't know really the long-term implications or the benefits. They might not even know the use factor. They might not even know where it's going or how it's going to be used. Exactly. It's so many have just been, and I, and again, I'm just, Speaking from my own personal experience, uh, uh, having been involved in the manufacturing sector for most of my career, uh, and then also now coaching, running into companies. And by the way, uh, this is not just for manufacturing. I, I have a couple of manufacturing companies in my portfolio of clients, but gosh, I mean, logistics and distribution and financial services and, oh my goodness, uh, so many different uh, uh, companies. They even have a, an educational center, a Montessori school. And yet all of these principles that we're talking about would apply to any company, any organization, public, private, nonprofit. Gee, I was with a nonprofit uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago facilitating one of their board meetings, and we got into into some of this, uh, uh, helping them identify a critical number. Um, it was a new concept for them. So, um, Yeah, absolutely. So, Rich, uh, one more thought here, and then I'll transition over to uh, to Steve because I wanted to get his input on on the on the book, actually the the, the guts of the book here. But um, 
we talk about Jack coming down from Chicago and looking at the origins of the company and, and putting $100,000, which was at risk. That was a lot of money. I mean, I think of myself in 1983 or whenever that was and what 10000 or 20000 or $5,000 would have meant at that point. And I'm not sure I would have put that at risk uh, or even could have at that point uh, as a salary guy. From then till now, there's a lot of water under the bridge, right? I mean, a lot of things have happened. What are some of the biggest benefits that you see of a company getting into the great game and how has SRC benefited? I mean, and we're talking both financially and also other, other, in other areas. Well, I think it's on two sides. Certainly um, the financial results from this can be very impactful. I mean, just when, with our own history with SRC, we talked earlier about being at 89 to one debt to equity ratio and 116 employees, $16 million in sales to kind of fast forward almost 40 years is that, Today, we've taken that 89 to 1 debt to equity ratio and created a lot of value in the organization. Mm. If you would have invested $1,000, if you were brave enough to invest $1,000 back in, in uh, 1983, that $1,000 investment is worth you know, close to $8 million in value today. Oh, my goodness. Um, so, and, and this is created off of a company that was really in a, in a, in industry and in a market that doesn't necessarily, it's not, wouldn't consider it to be a growth technology business. This is an old remanufacturing marketplace. So to create that kind of value in that, that period of time is, is, is really been generated by those everyday decisions, better decisions every day and how to uh, systematically grow this business. So just a day, uh, just a day at a time, and but with a, but with a, um, what shall we call it, a roadmap in terms of how to do it, which was yes painstakingly developed and probably iterated over many many months and years to what it is uh, today. So, well, thanks. For, I mean, I can't even imagine it, a thousand dollar investment at eight million. So today, forty years later, there can't be too many stories like that in the business lexicon in the United States anyway, I, or worldwide, I can't imagine anybody doing any better than that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And what's really cool about it is now you, you know, you're 30, 40 uh, years into this, you have a lot of those folks that were in their twenties and thirties when they started this organization and now are at retirement age and are leaving with a nice little uh, nest egg, right? Um, mm-hmm. And, they've seen the full circle of what they can do in terms of impacting the business and the value it can create. And then, you know, the big challenge for our organization is to be able to take in another 20, 30 or 40 years, right. To, to fully transition. Now we've made a lot of strides because if you think of the uh, 13 managers that uh, originally bought the company, only Mm -hmm. one is left and that's Jack and he's been completely out of the employee ownership. Um, So we have completely, um, you know, paid off the original owners and many of the other owners that have retired. And now we're looking forward to the next 30 or 40 years. Wow. It's what a story. And to have it be, um, you know, so long lasting and enduring, actually multi-generational. I mean, uh, you know, today companies cease to exist. I mean, they just shut down. I mean, a long, a long haul for a company is 15 years. There, you know, there are some companies obviously that are a lot longer than that, but, but many just don't last. This is a story that just has got to get listened to and 
I know you guys have, have done a great job in terms of uh, broadcasting this out and writing this book, and we're looking forward to Jack's book as well. Steve, so we talked just a minute ago, I mentioned the, the concept of a roadmap or, or sort of a, let's say, a framework to think about this and be thinking about the audience here. We're talking to, in many cases, leaders and CEOs of companies all around uh, the country in some cases, all around the world, I'm actually getting feedback from different places. Uh, the World Wide Web is amazing. You know, you, <laughs> you're just out there. But in the book uh, that you and, and Rich have just uh, published, the Get in the Game, you're describing how a company can get in the game. The, you know, sort of the steps they need to embrace this concept of the great game of business, um, also referred to as open book management. Uh, but you know, we're not going to have time for a full description and unpacking of, of all the steps, but can you walk us through some of the key elements or at least kind of highlight the elements that are required for us to get, uh, at least in the initial phases of it? Uh, what, what would that look like for a CEO and a leadership team in a company wanting to embrace this concept? No, that's, that's a great question. And uh, I, what I like is that you're kind of opening it up to a bigger audience, right? You mentioned uh, you work with education, not profit, uh, yep. uh, tech, manufacturing, service. That's the cool thing about this is our book and Jack's book are filled with stories about people from every segment in, uh, applying the, the methodology. And so what we like to say is when somebody says, oh, I, I heard you had a really cool bonus program, we say, well, there's 10 steps to that. And if somebody says, man, I really love this thing called mini games, or I want to learn how to have an impressive huddle or whatever it is, we always say there's 10 steps to that <laughs> because we've got the methodology figured out that allows anyone in any segment of industry uh, to teach their people business. And that's the whole thing is that the financials have been around for 500 years uh, you know, since the Renaissance, and uh, they aren't changing anytime soon. And it's the one thing that is universal. In fact, when I speak, Michael, I'll throw up a picture of a Chinese balance sheet. Uh, I really like this e exercise because I'll say, can you guys read this? You know, it doesn't matter what audience, and they can read the numbers. They can't read the characters, you know, for what those numbers stand for, but they can see that the balance sheet indeed balances. And I said, well, you just you just read Chinese. You know, the whole thing is, these are universal. They cross every cultural, uh, geographic, country boundary, uh, language barrier. They are universal. So why aren't we teaching our employees? So these 10 steps are based on uh, the, the simple idea that Jack put out in 1983, which was, hey, business is like a game. To play any game, you got to know what the goal is. That's the critical number. And then you have to know what game you're in. So you got to know and teach the rules. You've got to follow the action and keep score because if you're not keeping score, it's just practice. And finally, man, if we do all this, what's in it for me? So provide a stake in the outcome. Those, those are the principles of the game. Now, there's 10 steps to implementing it. We say, first of all, you've got to start with the right leadership because the great game of business, open book management, if you will, is not right for everyone. If someone's out to enrich just themselves, chances are, they probably will be able to use a lot of our practices, but not to the same degree that someone who is really wanting to grow their people. So reflecting on your own leadership style, on your leadership team style, are you ready for this? And then lots of good tools to uh, you know, try to take you to the next level. And then it's share the why before the how. That's step number two, because 
as you pointed out, someone might work their whole life in a factory or at a software organization or something and just do the, the work and never really know why. Uh, what is the purpose behind this whole thing? Because people will really act differently when they understand the big picture. Then it's number three, open the books and teach the numbers. You can't play a game if you don't know what game you're in. And we often start by showing people how very hard it is to make money anyway. And uh, we quit treating people like children. We ask them to become adults and here's the information, good or bad, and we're going to share it with you and we're going to ask you to influence it, to change it and make it for the better. Step four, focus on the critical number. Identify what winning means and what matters most in the business. So then we can go to step five, which is to act on the right drivers of that critical number. When we have that, now we have kind of a line of sight to what matters most from the front line all the way to the C-suite. Everybody understands how they can impact the critical number. Now we put step six in, create early wins with mini games. So this is 90 day improvement programs to go after the critical number, which is dynamite because it allows people to get rewards as quick as 30 days. So 30, 60, 90 days are getting rewards. That leads us to step seven, which is provide a stake in the outcome. This is where a lot of people find the great game is because we have an amazing self-funding bonus program uh, that's built around this idea of, hey, if we move the number, the critical number, we will be able to pay a bonus. When we started talking, Michael, um, I think we kind of alluded to the fact that you might wait till the end of the year to figure out if you had a bonus that, you know, you, I, I'm just picturing you uh, back in the day uh, being a salaried guy, what tense Christmases you must have had waiting to see if you'd get a Christmas bonus, you know, that's no way to live. It was horrible. And then wondering, uh, you know, wondering, well, my colleague or my contemporary over here, how, how big was his and was mine similar? And I worked harder than him. And what's the deal? I, it just, it just emotionally, it's like you spend so much time, wasted time thinking about these things. It's where it wouldn't be great if you knew right along. What, yeah. What if you knew all the time? I just had a call this morning from a company out East um, in Virginia that was asking about step seven, provide a stake in the outcome, our bonus program. And what's interesting is, is I had to walk them through the whole process to get there because the, the thing is they could not believe what we state in the book. And that is, can you imagine what your performance would be like if people were actually forecasting their own bonus every week? Wouldn't it be neat if people could control their own destiny? And uh, so it was a really great conversation and they, uh, they got the picture that, oh, it's not just throwing a new bonus program in. There's a whole relationship between performance and teaching people what makes a difference because that's what they lack right now. Steve, one thing I, I just like you, you got to unpack this a little bit for me. Sure. And for our listeners, I think I heard you say something about a self-funded bonus. That's an interesting concept. Can you talk about that? Well, I think that for your listeners, the self-funded bonus plan ought to be one of the triggers that makes them take some action because uh, when they hear it, they might be like, I'm not sure. Just like you're asking, what does that mean? Let's start by saying, uh, first of all, most bonus plans suck. They just do. <laughs> <laughs> Part of it is that they, uh, you know, discretionary bonuses sound really good, um, but they're really horrible for owners and for employees because owners sweat over them, you know, November and December, like this guy deserves that, this gal deserves that. And they got to think about it. And 
what can we afford? I even had an owner tell me one time they paid my bonus out of debt. This is years after, of course. Oh. I'm like, oh, that's terrible. And then for employees, it's never enough because they don't know what they did to get it. What we do, the great game system is really pretty straightforward. I mean, it is about let's set a goal and let's put financials around that. Because if we can improve the financial picture and those metrics that, that drive it, well, we should be able to share in the rewards. So a self-funded bonus infers that if we set this goal, we're going to make sure that we have enough over to, uh, to share. Part goes to the company, part goes to the employee bonus pool, and we pay that uh, as a team bonus. So it's a percent of salary versus an individualized kind of uh, deal. It's equitable rather than equal. Meaning if one person makes uh, $100,000 and one person makes uh, $60,000, they would get a percent of salary. So if we're on a level seven, sure, we get a 7% of our salary and then it's broken into quarterly payouts. Does that help a little bit, Michael? Oh, absolutely. I think it's so great. And, and you know, the point that you made earlier about, uh, you know, being uncertain, uh, you know, and the discretion, uh, the decision of that, who makes that discretionary decision? Oh, my gosh. As a CEO uh, in prior, you know, in a prior life, I can tell you that I've been, I've, I've been in that seat, and it's the absolute worst thing in the world. I mean, to to sit there and think about, well, how much should this guy get, and how much should that guy get, and that's just that's an impossible decision. It's a no win, and it's something that's completely self wrought. I mean, you bring it upon yourself by, uh, you know, saying I'm going to do discretionary bonuses. So we're really Jack Stack says one thing I think is fascinating, that the great game of business is the most freeing way to run a business ever, because you're teaching people to be business people, asking them to participate and having them share in the rewards. The funny thing is most great game companies outperform their peers significantly. And so the owners end up better off than they were before. Um, An extreme example is in the book, Hillcorp Energy, uh, an oil and gas company down in uh, Texas, yeah, Houston, Texas. They've now become the largest independent producer of oil in Alaska. I mean, that the, these guys believe in their people. Wow. And they say that, hey, every five years in the, uh, uh, the scheme of things, we're talking about the different steps in the process and on this stake in the outcome. You know, we really believe in the short term, midterm and long term goals. Uh, Jeff Hildebrand has been written up a lot and he's in our book as well. Great Game of Business is the foundation of his culture. And he said, you know what, if you help me double the uh, rate of production, the approved reserves uh, and the equity in the business, you help me double the rate reserves and equity in the business in five years, I'll give everybody a big, hairy, audacious bonus. And this is on top of all their other compensation packages. And what's really amazing is people have done this multiple times. The first year, it was 25 grand. The next five years, it was 50 grand. The next five years, in June of 2015, everybody in the company got $100,000. Everybody. Goodness gracious. Now, but think of what he did. Paying off those bonuses sounds like a huge thing, especially if you have 12, 1,300 people at the time, right? But you just doubled my equity. <laughs> you know? So yeah. w- w- the way we look at it, when people play the great game of business, everybody wins. Yeah, so in in CEO speak for those uh, so for those uh, companies that are listening in, we're talking about massive increases in enterprise value, right? Massive, I mean, this is, yeah. This is helping your company become way, way, way more valuable. And not that you're thinking about exit, but many do. 
your exit options are are dramatically increased as a result of uh, of this, not just because of the value of the business, but also the acquiring company is going to come in and and gain an, an enormous advantage over their competition and over other risks uh, that are in the that are in the business because of how it's run. This is this is the way to run a business. So, Steve, we talk a lot in the CEO Brain Food podcast about culture and the importance of a healthy culture in any organization. And you've mentioned culture in one of your comments just a, just a bit ago in this in this conversation. And whether we're talking about a privately held company or a public company or a nonprofit, culture is just so critically important. And there exists culture in the heads and hearts of the CEO and the leadership team. There's another culture that's active out in the out in the uh, operations of the business. Sometimes, many times, there's a gap between the two. But how does Great Game think about culture? I mean, is there any kind of a structure or a process that you start to that you introduce into a company as you're starting to work with them as a coaching organization? Yeah. So um, I'm really tuned into this because I think that you know, having been the quote unquote employee for a lot of my life, you know, I always wished I worked at some place, you know, and of course, Google wasn't even around back then, you know, but, you know, one of those places you hear about, you know, where there's, uh, you know, wear jeans to work and bring your dog to work and all these kinds of cool things, nap rooms free and beer. bean bags. Yeah. Free beer. What, what yeah. the hell? And, uh, <laughs> well, I did that anyway. So, no. <laughs> but the, uh, interesting thing is, is that you, when you start to implement the great game of business, first of all, you're starting with step one, begin with the right leadership. You're literally reflecting on, do we have the good characteristics of, uh, of leaders? You know, are we really modeling the behavior we expect out of others? And when you start there and you say, hey, we're going to build an organization that is based on mutual respect, trust, education, communication, all the stuff that you have to have to teach people business and then track, measure, report right? All that stuff, that accountability. These are things everybody wants. If you ask anybody, well, I shouldn't say that, but most of the people I know that gripe about work to this day, a lot of it has to do with either they don't really know what's going on or somebody else isn't carrying their weight. And man, if I could have accountability, blah, 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 blah. And I see it so much. Um, What I love about great game companies is you're starting from a different place. You're saying, hey, we're all in this together. And if you like this, stick around, we'll build something amazing. If you don't fit, we'll help you get a job. And the best thing to do is help them get a job at your competitors. You know, let them let the, the, the slackers and the, the dead weight go work for your competitors. Because <laughs> Look, a, 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 a culture it. of performance isn't for everyone. And it's not like we're going to kick people out. There are still always going to be a need for people who, well, you know, I'm not exactly on the bandwagon, but I'm not pulling it the other direction. Okay, we'll teach you and teach you and we'll keep going. But um, we don't just leave that on the leaders and we don't just dump it onto the HR people. We at SRC anyway, and many of our all-star companies out there in the community will uh, create what we call ownership culture committees or culture councils. But it's basically a group of employees who have it. Mm -hmm. You know, they're kind of the influencers and they have a lot of energy. They're the cheerleaders. And we start there and we ask them to take on some of the responsibility. Hey, can you guys help with the financial literacy? Can you uh, help to run many games? Can you be a sounding board for ideas? Can you help us with high involvement planning and getting the buy-in? And so what we're looking for always is a way to develop leaders. And when you develop people and when you communicate 
when you hold one another accountable, it's a much more collaborative thing going on. So I'm not going to tell you that you shouldn't read books on culture and you shouldn't read books on uh, crucial conversations and you shouldn't read uh, books on emotional intelligence. Yeah, you should do all that because you should be a good person and you should be a good leader. What I'm saying is that like Herb Kelleher from Southwest used to say, culture is just what happens when nobody's looking. So I'd like what when I'm gone, I'd like it to be the coolest place ever so that when I am there, it's it's even better. You know, that the, no matter what, it isn't a person or a uh, poster on the wall or a set of stale values that sit in the lobby. I want it to be something that's living, breathing and, and happening with people. And that's going to involve really giving them some responsibility and accountability for the culture that they want to. So the concept that the company really is at the center of everything and the, and the people that are working in the company have a piece of it, a stake in the outcome that could be bonus. It could be uh, even a, a stock option or, or possibly even, even equity in the business uh, uh, and employee uh, ownership. Michael, it could be line item ownership. It could just be that this is the first place they ever had responsibility. And they were treated like a, mm. and they were treated like a, an adult, you know, like they were a big person and that they, they meant something. You know, we always like to say, if you can get people talking about what happened at work today around the dinner table, you got them. And so that idea of making it a vibrant place to work, you know, you said something interesting a moment ago that it centers around the company. What if it centered around the people? And the fact is, is that we, our commonality is to make this company successful because it feeds everything we need. Again, job security, career path, raises, bonuses, benefits, all that kind of stuff happens from building a great company. In fact, when, when I teach our class, I tell a, a quick story about the life of Pi and the people who did the visual effects. Basically speaking, mm-hmm. that company went out of business or went, I should say, I'm sorry, uh, went bankrupt making the effects for Life of Pi and laid off 254 people. The thing is, they were the best in the world. So we say, can you be the best in the world and still lose everything? Sure you can. So what if we focus on one concept that really encapsulates the great game of business? The company is the product. And if that's the case, if the company is indeed the product, building a great company, you will have the best quality, the best service, the best of everything. And that's a great place to work, if you ask me. Because then won't you also have the communication, the accountability, the respect? Steve, what a what a great uh, summary! I, I it's just uh, it's so simple and it's right in front of our nose, and yet all of the companies out that we run into, I mean, typically they're calling for help. I mean, they're why are they doing that? Well, they're in trouble, yeah. and they you know they need they need help, and they struggle on all of the stuff you're talking about, the quality issues, the cultural issues, I mean, the, the people. Um, and so, great game. I, I just have found it, uh, in full disclosure, I'm a, I'm a certified uh, uh, great game coach for those listening, and I just wanted to say for those of you listening that I chose this because I was searching in my coaching practice for something that was missing in other coaching associations, not to bring anyone down or any other organization. They're all very, very good, but there are elements that are missing uh, from most of them. And, um, and great game really, really punches that ticket. It's just amazing what this, uh, 
what this organization, this uh, SRC Holdings and and the uh, and the coaching organization, which is this great game of business, has done. It's it's really um, uh, it's just really phenomenal. And I and I would add that uh, I love the concept of a living lab. There is no other coaching association in the world that does uh, that does what Great Game does. They actually invite you out to Springfield to tour the facilities to see the action to see it happen. And it is truly amazing. Been there, done that. It is absolutely amazing to see. It's a, it's a thing of beauty. So as we wrap up, I want to thank Rich and Steve for their time today and for writing and publishing Get In The Game, the definitive guide to implementing the great game of business. I'm, I'm super excited about it. I, I hope all of our listeners are. You can find it along with a lot of other resources at greatgame.com. And there you can discover more about the fundamentals of the great game of business, um, how to get started. And along with that, uh, sign-up links for their quarterly uh, Get in the Game workshops, also located in Springfield. We'd love to have you. And if you do come to Springfield for that, they do such a fantastic job uh, of that. Uh, they've, they've got it just facilitated beautifully. I really encourage you as a CEO to bring your leadership team because it is very, very difficult, speaking from experience, to go to a workshop like this and come back to your home base and tell everybody about it. You need other emissaries, other evangelists that will help you. So bring your team, get them all excited. And we'd like to, uh, to invite you to consider attending the annual conference of the Great Game of Business, and that's referred to as the Gathering of the Games, and it happens once a year. This year coming up in 2020, it's going to be in Dallas, Texas, September 9th through 11th. If you are interested in learning more about how Great Game Coaching works, feel free to contact the Great Game of Business at greatgame.com, or just reach out to me at langhoutinternational.com, or you can reach me on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. And as a certified Great Game Coach, I can provide you with more information uh, or even get you to a great game coach that would be a bet best uh, fit uh, for your needs. So thank you all for listening, and thank you again, Rich and Steve, for a great uh, time and greatly appreciated. So thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Michael. Thanks for listening to this episode of CEO Brain Food. If you're enjoying the content of these episodes and are ready to get your leadership team aligned so you can scale effectively, we invite you to download Michael's newest resource, the Functional Team Scorecard. This scorecard will help you establish role clarity and accountability on the senior leadership team, engage your leadership team in the financials of the business, and align and synchronize your team around a critical number. Download your free copy today at ceobrainfood.com forward slash scorecard, or click on the link in the show notes. Tune in next Monday for another compelling episode of CEO Brain Food. Oh, 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 oh,